Almighty God, as we read in your word of all the lengths that your people used to have to go to, to come into your presence, we are reminded again what a privilege it is that we might come this evening trusting simply in the blood of Jesus Christ, that we may come into the presence of our God and King. And so, Father, as we come to your word now, thank you that you are present with us by your Spirit. Would you take these words and and plant them deep in our hearts, be at work in our lives, that we might be those who bring glory to Jesus Christ. Turn our eyes indeed towards Jesus, we pray. In his name. Amen. Amen. Well, please do uh, take a seat and please keep your Bibles open at Exodus 25. I wonder if you've ever addressed an envelope using the full address, and I mean the full address. Here's an example I found online of someone in the States uh, sending in their tax return. They sent it to the Internal Revenue Service, Kansas City, Missouri, USA, Earth, Solar System, Milky Way Galaxy, Local Group, Virgo Cluster, observable universe. And you can see that they even gave their return address in the top left corner, their full return address. I remember as a child uh, the feeling I got as I wrote out my full address, a feeling of, of somehow getting a handle on where I truly lived. Not just uh, the house I inhabited, uh, but bigger than that, something of my place in the whole scheme of things. Something of my home in the universe. Because, of course, uh, whilst this may be to astronomers simply a a rocky planet orbiting a main-sequence star in just one of many millions of spiral galaxies around the universe, to all of us, it's more than that, isn't it? It's home. And that that feeling of home is more than simply an address. It's a feeling of of belonging, of of being rooted, of being established. If you've ever moved between cultures, then uh, you'll know just how valuable that feeling is. I was speaking earlier this week to a a couple who've come to the UK from Hong Kong in the last few years, and, and they use that language. They spoke of their desire to be rooted here in Nottingham, to be rooted at Cornerstone. And yet they also spoke of of how precious it had been to meet up with other Hong Kong families over the Lunar New Year and share that that feeling of common cultural experience, that feeling of a shared outlook on life, that feeling of home. And, you know, it would be easy to characterize the book of Exodus as the quest for a home for the people of Yahweh. God has set about rescuing his people from slavery in ancient Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness, on the journey to the promised land, on their way to their new home. But the chapters that we're looking at this evening show us that actually 
there's something bigger going on. Something even of greater importance. Something of cosmic significance. Just look again at the the start of chapter 25. The Lord instructs Moses to invite the ancient Israelites to bring offerings, each as their heart prompts them. Gold, silver and bronze, yarn and fine linen, goat hair, leather, wood, oil, spices, gemstones. Why? What for? Well, let's read verse 8. Then let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. I will dwell among them. You see, this is about more than finding a home for God's people. It is about finding a way for God to live with his people. Home is is less about their address and, and more about who they live with. And what's been lost since Genesis 3, what's been lost is is the dwelling of God amongst his people. That he would live with them. That he would make a home for himself among them. Way back in the the Garden of Eden, uh, that's what we saw. God and his people living together in close fellowship. Dwelling in communion. Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so as Adam and Eve were driven from the garden in punishment for their sin, well, the issue was not so much that they would no longer live in that place, but rather that they would no longer live with God. He would no longer dwell where they did. Not that God was was no longer present in his creation. He was. He's everywhere. But rather that he no longer dwelt with his people. He was no longer at home with them. So what the Lord is doing in the Exodus is is not merely bringing his people from a less pleasant location to a more pleasant one. It's not just about a change of address. Rather, it is about reestablishing the home bringing God and his people back together, making it possible for Yahweh to dwell amongst human beings. That's what this tabernacle in chapters 25, 26, and 27 is all about. That's what the word tabernacle means. It means a dwelling, a home. Even the furniture in there was was designed to call to mind the tents that the ancient Israelites themselves would have lived in. A table with bread on it. A lampstand to illuminate the space. This is a home. And notice that it's all portable. Each item was to be made with rings on the side to fit carrying poles so that the tabernacle could be easily moved. What mattered was was not where the Israelites were, but who was with them. Who was dwelling amongst them? God, living with his people. That was not dependent on their address. In time, the the portable tabernacle would be replaced by the more permanent temple in a specific place, Jerusalem. But right from the beginning, God's provision of a land for his people was that they might go out from there to all the nations, 
that the whole world might know what it was for God to dwell amongst them. That was the plan in Eden, uh, that the garden might be extended, and it was always the plan for ancient Israel too. And so it's no accident that there are so many botanical features in the tabernacle, so many references to the garden. Just look again at the description of the lampstand from verse 31 of chapter 25. It was to have flower-like cups, buds and blossoms, six branches, three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms on each branch. Four cups on the central stand, again, shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms, branches, buds and blossoms. This is a lamp in a home, yes, but it is also a tree, a tree in a garden. Even the entrance to the tabernacle, we're told in chapter 27, even the entrance was to be on the east side. Adam and Eve had been put out of the garden and and cherubim with a flaming sword prevented them from going back in. Where? On the east. The tabernacle was designed to bring people back to Eden. To bring God back to dwell with his people. And it's not just garden imagery. All that gold and silver, bronze and fine linen, purple and scarlet yarn, that's all the sign of a royal resident. This was to be a home fit for a king. In the ancient Near East, kings would have sat on a raised throne with steps leading up to it and with a footstool at the base of the throne. As he sat in judgment, the king would have rested his feet on that footstool. The ark that the ancient Israelites were to make had exactly the same dimensions as one of those kingly footstools. To the people building the tabernacle, the imagery would have been clear. Yahweh sits enthroned in the heavens, but the earth is his footstool. More specifically, uh, this bit of earth, where the tabernacle was, where the ark was. As he sat in judgment, it was on the ark that Yahweh was to rest his feet. Through the presence of the ark in the tabernacle, once again, there was to be a direct link between heaven and earth, between creator and his created people. Yahweh was to plant his feet amongst the people of ancient Israel. Yahweh was to dwell again amongst his people. But hang on a minute, you might be thinking, hang on. We've just been reading in the the previous chapters of, of how terrifying meeting Yahweh was of the thunder and fire and smoke and earthquakes as he came down to Sinai. All of Exodus has shown us how holy he is, how he is utterly opposed to sin, how he will break out against any sinful person who gets too close. Well, the ancient Israelites haven't got any holier. So how can such a a holy, perfect, righteous God now come to the same people who before couldn't even approach the mountain. 
How can a holy God dwell amongst a decidedly unholy people? Well, that's the very core of the tabernacle. The the ark itself speaks of God's continued requirement for holiness and of his provision for an unholy people. They were to make the ark and, and place in it the tablets of the covenant law, the record of all that God required of his people. Uh, But then, uh, let's read again from verse 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Verse 21, place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Do you see? The covenant and its requirements were still to be at the heart of the relationship between God and his people. But right from the beginning, God made provision for a people whom he knew could never keep the terms of that covenant. Uh, Those two tablets, I think we get it wrong if we imagine five commandments on one and five on the other, as they're so often shown in drawings. No, far more likely the, the two tablets were two identical copies of the whole law. That's how uh, these ancient agreements usually worked. Two copies of the terms, uh, one to be taken home by each party to remind them of of what they'd agreed. But notice here that 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 is not what happens to these two copies. Now here, God keeps them both. The terms of the covenant are to live in his dwelling, in his place. He will keep them because the people cannot. He knows that the people will fall short. But he will not fail. He will keep the covenant, both sides of it, as it turns out. And what will he do about the continued sin of the ancient Israelites? He will cover it. On top of the ark, over the tablets of stone, is a cover. Not a carpet under which sin may be swept. No, rather a cover on which atonement may be provided. In the centuries to come, once each year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in order to to sprinkle that cover with blood. The blood of a bull. The blood of a substitute given to make atonement. Given to bring God and his people back together to restore fellowship. Oh, what a wonderful provision of grace this tabernacle is. Now, by his grace, in his kindness, now Yahweh has made a way that he might once again dwell with his people. That they might once again enjoy communion with him. That they might once again be home. 
that he might make his home amongst them. What a gracious provision. And yet in chapters 26 and 27, two further features of the tabernacle make it clear that whilst this is a wonderful, gracious provision, a kind and generous gift to his people, it still is not all that it could be. The sense in which God will dwell among his people through the tabernacle is not quite what it was in Eden to rest his feet on an earthly footstool is not quite to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. First, in chapter 26, there are curtains, lots of them. Some to mark the outer perimeter of the tabernacle, but but also some to mark divisions within the tabernacle, boundaries and, and partitions, an outer courtyard for the people, an inner holy place for the priests, and then the most holy place for the ark, for God himself. Let's read from verse 31 of chapter 26. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant Law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law in the most holy place. Do you see, God was there, dwelling with his people, but they were still to be separated from him. Just as the people had had waited at the bottom of the mountain while Moses and the elders went up to eat in God's presence. Just as the elders had waited as Moses went further on into the cloud. So even in the very construction of the tabernacle, there was to be separation, division. Yes, the, the people could enter through the east gate into the outer courtyard, but they could go no further. The thick curtain complete with embroidered cherubim, a tragically tangible reminder that sin still separated. And the altar too, where the the sacrifices were to be made to atone for that sin. Well, Well, just look with me now at the start of chapter 27. Look at how that altar was to be constructed. Verse one. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all of its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks and firepans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. 
Did you see it? Did you notice the, the tragic reality of this altar? It is built to be reused. This is no one-time disposable barbecue. No, this is the deluxe grilling setup, designed to be used again and again and again. Each and every time the Israelites were to enter the tabernacle, there would have had to have been a sacrifice, the blood of an animal to substitute for the human life owed. The blood and the carcass, the sights and the sounds, the smell. Constant reminder that, that now, though there was communion between God and man, it was a broken communion. Though there was fellowship, it, it was damaged fellowship. In this sense, at least, uh, there was a tragic difference between this co-dwelling and that of the garden. The tabernacle was still only a shadow of the beautiful relationship we were created to enjoy with our God. It looked a bit like Eden, but it wasn't Eden. Praise God. The tabernacle is not the last word on God dwelling with his people. Neither even was the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, no, the time was coming when God would not only plant his feet, but would come in all his fullness. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word is literally the word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word, the eternal word, the creating word, the word who was with God and who was God, that word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus Christ fulfilled all that the tabernacle and after it the temple had promised. In Christ, God dwelt with his people as never before. In Christ, he, he walked and talked and ate and drank with his people. He lived and, and loved and rejoiced and mourned with his people. He dwelt among us. And he died for us. And his sacrifice was once for all. Not a reusable bronze grating, but a decisive wooden cross. And as his blood ran down that better altar, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The barrier was removed. The guard lifted and communion restored. Now, because of Christ, now God can truly dwell amongst his people. 
And so for us today who are in Jesus Christ, who know him and, and love him as Lord and Savior, for us, our communion with Yahweh is better than it was for them then. Better even than for the disciples who, who walked and talked with Jesus. Because today, Yahweh, the great God of gods, the mighty creator and righteous king, he dwells among us by his spirit. He lives within us. He tabernacles in our very hearts. So we may know that feeling of home, not because of where we live or what our address is, but because of who it is who lives with us, who lives within us. Just listen to these words that Jesus prayed just before he went to the cross. Father, he said, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. By his spirit, Jesus himself is in us now. Dwelling with us making his home in our hearts. And by his spirit, he will hold us close in that communion until the day he comes again. And on that day, we shall see his glory. And we shall know what it is to dwell with him in body as well as in spirit. And we shall be truly home. One day, for, for those of us in Christ Jesus, one day our full address will be the new Jerusalem, new creation, in the presence of the Creator, in the presence of our beloved sacrificial substitute, Jesus Christ. We will be truly home. And our God will tabernacle with us there. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's pray. Almighty God, 
What a wonder that we might come today before you. The same God that those ancient Israelites trembled to come before. The same God who would break out against sinful people. And yet we might come. Not because we are any better or any more righteous, but because Jesus Christ is the true and better sacrifice, the true and better tabernacle, in whom and through whom we might know what it is to have God dwell among us. So, Father, we pray that we might be a a church family. We might be a people who rejoice to have our God dwell within us by his Spirit. That we might be a, a kingdom of priests proclaiming him to those around us. And that we might wait with eager expectation for the day when that dwelling will be in body as well as in spirit. The day when we shall be truly home. Keep us until that day, we pray in Jesus Christ. Amen.